Well, if you'll take your uh, Bible and turn to Genesis 37, uh, hopefully you picked up a bulletin on your way in that has an outline of this morning's message, and it will also be on the screen. Um, you know, many years ago, when God uh, called me in full-time ministry, one of the, the desires he put in my heart was that I would be able to help people find forgiveness and freedom through faith in Jesus Christ. So... This is all about salvation. The Apostle Paul says the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that word salvation means to save. It means to heal. It means to deliver. And so uh, it's my heart's desire to see people come to faith in Christ and enter into his kingdom so that they have the eternal security of knowing that when this life is over with, they're going to spend eternity with Jesus. But it doesn't just stop there. That's salvation um, as part of it, but it's not all of it. Jesus also uh, wants us to become like him. That is, he wants us to walk in freedom. He wants us to walk in the liberty that he came to secure on our behalf because up to that point in our lives, uh, we were pretty much governed and controlled by um, sin, right? So we, we established sinful patterns in our lives and those sinful patterns were the outworking of sinful thoughts, right? So our thoughts were controlling our lives because the way you think affects the way that you feel, and the way you feel then affects the way that you act. So if you want to change your actions, you have to change the way that you think. So uh, this entire series is built on Romans 12 too that says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. That word pattern means like a jello mold. Don't, don't mold your mind around the pattern of the world and live like the world. No, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you're going to begin to understand and test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So that's our goal for this series, is that we will help you uh, understand, locate what are the mental strongholds that you battle with day in and day out. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is the second verse uh, that we are using for this series where Paul talks about the tearing down of strongholds. So a, a stronghold is uh, a stubborn pattern of thinking that resists God's word and will resist God's will. In other words, God's going to say this and you're going to say, eh, yeah, well, I don't want to do that. Yeah, well, that's not important. And I, I don't really need that. And as a result of that, um, that resistance, the mind begins to accept a situation that is, in your mind, unchangeable. Well, I tried to change once in my life, but it didn't work out well. Uh, or I've been trying to change this habit in my life, but I just keep going back to the same thing over and over again. You know, I, I get a little victory for a little while, but then I'm right back in the same boat doing the same thing I've always done. And quite frankly, it's so frustrating that I've just given up. And so now Satan has convinced you that you cannot change that area of your life because it's unchangeable, which is a lie of the enemy. In fact, what that says is that's, that's the particular place you probably have a significant stronghold. Now, some strongholds are pretty obvious, right? So a stronghold might be addiction, right? Any kind of addiction is a stronghold. But listen, although you may be addicted physically, it all began with a mental process, a mental issue. It was a thought process that led you to that, that form of addiction, whatever it is that might be for you. As you well know, uh, anger was, again, what was my issue early on in life when my 
parents split up. My dad left his family, and I was angry, and I grew up angry, and I was impatient, and I was looking for love in all the wrong places. I was looking to fit in, and so because of that mindset and the inner vow that I made to myself, I will never allow anyone to hurt me like this ever again, began to formulate my thought processes that put me in with a group of people in order to gain and find acceptance with them. I just dove into the same culture they were in, which was was drugs. It might, for some of you, it might be alcohol. It can be a thousand different things. Sometimes strongholds are built around relationships. Uh, if you are codependent upon somebody, that is a stronghold in an area of relationship. Uh, maybe some of you, it might be is something that is, that is obvious. Uh, it might be some form of abuse. Maybe you were abused or you are an abuser. All right. So the reason why abuse takes place is because of the mental side of the issue, the thought processes that are going on inside of your mind that leads you to the behaviors that you're exhibiting. Now, some strongholds are not quite so obvious. They're, they're undercover, right? I can look at you and would never know that that stronghold is there. It can be things like hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment. It can be sexual addictions. It can be a thousand different things that can be going on in your life, but I can assure you that the root of that is found in in your mind. If you want to change your life, you have to change your thoughts because your life is always moving in the direction of your most dominant thinking. So if I'm constantly having negative thoughts, depressing thoughts, then I'm never going to be a positive person, right? I'm probably going to battle with depression. And that's not the only cause of depression, but it certainly can be one of the causes of depression. For example, maybe you had a bad breakup, a bad marriage. You've been through a divorce. Maybe there was abuse. Maybe there was verbal abuse. It might have been physical abuse. Maybe somebody, your spouse cheated on you, and now you have trust issues. So what do people do when they have trust issues? They want to become controlling, right? So that's the first thing we do. We want to control everything and everyone because we made an inner vow. I will never allow this to happen to me again. And so now that inner vow is what guides and directs your life, and it's more precious to you even than God's word because you, this, this um, fortress has been built in your mental process that says, I will do whatever it takes to make sure that never happens to me again. Therefore, I will control everyone and everything so that I am in control and I'm never out of control in the relationship. Well, we know, you know, and I know that when you're controlling or you're controlled, you don't think that person's very loving. This is the reason why God doesn't control you because that would be unloving. If somebody's controlling, we say, man, that person's really unloving. Why, why are they unloving? Because they're so controlling. So these are issues that we deal with, the things that we battle with. And this is what this series is about. It's about dismantling these strongholds, these thought processes that keep us enslaved to um, behaviors, enslaved to emotions, enslaved to consequences that we really don't want, but we just find ourselves, as I said before, on this merry-go-round of life, and we just can't seem to get off, and we find ourselves doing the same things over and over again, vowing every year, and our New Year's resolutions is going to be different this year, but this year is just like last year, like the year before and the year before, and the question is, how, how do I stop this? So there's three steps in this process. We spent two weeks on the, the very first step, and the very first step, and this is on your outline, is this. You have to recognize what is the biggest stronghold in your life. Now, most of you, you don't have to think very hard or very long to understand what that is. I mean, and if, you, if you're stumbling with it, ask people around you. I'll guarantee you they can tell you what it is. 
See, that's the one thing you don't know. You don't know what it's like to live on the other side of you, but everybody else knows what it's like to live on the other side of you. And so they could probably name it for you. Now, we looked at the life of Jacob two weeks ago as we looked at this particular uh, point in this series out of the book of Genesis. And we noted that Jacob had two major strongholds in his life. He lied a lot and he had sexual addictions. He had sexual sin. And so due to his lying and his deceit, Jacob experienced a lot of personal pain and he experienced a lot of family pain. And Pain and sin are two issues that we all deal with. And, and the main point in that message was this. And it's one you need to, to really get in, in your mind. Is, it is simply this. Sin not removed and pain that is not resolved will always hinder you from thinking differently. All right? Sin not removed, pain not resolved will always hinder you from thinking differently. For example, if you're walking around with a spirit of bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment, I'm telling you, you're going to have a hard problem, time thinking differently unless you go back to the root cause of all of that, which I can assure you is some painful event in your life, and you got to root up that painful event. And as we said, the second step in that process is you got to, what is the lie that I am believing about this painful event in my life that has caused me to think erroneously? That's causing me the pain that I'm experiencing now in my relationships. What's causing me to hang on to the anger and the bitterness and the resentment? Why, why am I holding on to that even though I know it is not healthy for me? It's not healthy for the relationships around me because whatever you failed to grieve in your painful past, everybody else around you will eventually feel it. Because it spills out. You can't put toxic emotions into your, your emotional system and not expect it to come out in many different ways. And often towards those who you love the most. Change your thoughts. You can change your life. And so here's the two points. I, I, I'm just sub-points to that is you cannot change what you fail to confront. All right? If you just say, well, you know, my life is just the way it is, just the way I am, it's the way I'm always going to be, like it or leave me, right? Or like it or not like me and uh, have nothing to do with me. Listen, Jesus didn't save you to leave you as you are. He saved you to conform you to his image. And so this is the process that we go through in this lifetime. It's not about perfection. It's all about making progress. But you can, listen, until you confront something, you'll never do anything about it. You'll just have the same thought patterns, and you'll go around the same merry-go-round over and over and over again. And here's the second point. You cannot defeat, you cannot defeat what you have not defined. You have to define what is the lie that I am believing that's keeping me on this merry-go-round. So I gave you several questions in that message a few weeks ago on how to drill down on discovering what is the core lie that I am believing and I gave you an example out of my own life. And so uh, one of the core lies, I believe, uh, was that I, you know, I was worthless and I, I, I didn't amount to anything and I wasn't smart enough and I wasn't talented enough and I, I was never enough. I, it's, that was the core lie. I was never enough. I was never enough for anybody, anything, or anyone. 
So that was the core lie I was believing that was governing my behavior. So if you believe that about yourself, you're never enough and you're trying to fit in so that you're not alone all your life and you want to have friends. And so what are you going to do to try to fit in with that group? You're going to do whatever they want you to do. And I did some really stupid stuff. In fact, it's a wonder I'm, I'm even still alive for some things that we did. So that's the first one. Here's, here's the second point. And we're going to drill down on this for this week and next week. Um, and it's simply this. You have to renew your mind with the word of God. Where do we find truth that confronts the lie that you're believing in God's word? A lie cannot stand up against the truth. And if you don't have truth that's confronting the lie, then watch this. You, most of you have believed the lie that's the core of your stronghold for so long, you now think it's truth. And the, the only way you're going to know it's not truth is have God's truth stand up against that lie and say, no, this is not true. This is something that you have generated or Satan has implanted in your mind because he wants to control you and therefore you're building your life on a lie. I want to give you the truth to set you free from that lie that is creating all kinds of coping mechanisms in your life that are unhealthy for you and your relationships. So as we continue in the example of Jacob, uh, he was the guy who by the end of his life, he didn't change much. All right, he, he struggled with the same stuff most of his life. He had some really neat encounters with God. You remember he wrestled with God and, and, and God touched the socket of his thigh and he walked with a limp and God changed his name to Israel. And, uh, and so that was a, a, a life-defining moment for him. And, and so he changed in some ways, but he still continued to struggle all throughout his lifetime with the same besetting mental strongholds that he battled with throughout the course of of his, his lifetime. And I'm sure that despite all the opportunities that were given to him to change, he always thought, you know, I'm going to change. It's going to be different next year. I'm going to be better. I'm going I'm to walk with God more closely, and I'm going to be a better father and leader over my family, and, and I'm going to do the, the things that God wants me to do in the right way that God wants me to do them. But look in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, remember Joseph is the son. Jacob had one, one of his wives was Rachel, his favorite wife, obviously. He made no bones about that. And so Rachel gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin, and she died in childbirth with Benjamin. And so Joseph, a young man, 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. Remember, um, Jacob had uh, Leah as a wife. He had, uh, you know, their maidservants that he had children with, and so on and so forth, tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, two of the, the maidservants, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, watch this. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Do you think that's a health, healthy family dynamic? There's 12 sons. Joseph loves, or Jacob loves Joseph more than any of them, and he makes no bones about it. How do you know that? Well, look what it says. He says, he made him a richly ornated robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. 
Same problem his dad dealt with, same problem his mother dealt with, same dysfunction in the family and the generational sin passed down. And here's Jacob, uh, you know, he's, he's getting towards the end of his life and it's still the same stuff. This is the son that I love. I'm going to show it by giving this beautiful coat. And if that weren't enough, as his other sons are out in the fields because they're older, tending to the flocks, Jacob would send Joseph out to spy on them and report back to him how they were doing. And Joseph didn't always give a favorable report. And so when they would hear about this, they hated him all the more. And if that weren't enough, God gives Joseph a dream and he tells his brothers the dream. And in essence of the dream, he says to his brothers, one day you all are going to bow down at my feet and I'm going to be over you. Now that makes for a good love affair, right? Now here's the problem. What did Jacob do about that? Nothing. Nothing. He never addressed the issue. He never addressed the stronghold in his life. And as a result of that, for those of you who have read through Genesis, you know that Joseph takes some food out to his brothers. They're out in the field. They see him coming a long way off. They so hate him by now. They decide they're going to kill him. But the older brother, Reuben, says we can't kill him. So they throw him down in a cistern and they leave him down in there. We're just going to leave him to die or whatever. And so there's a caravan that comes. They sell him to the caravan who takes him as a slave into Egypt. And there, you know, he's, he becomes a, a, a ruler over Potiphar's household. And Potiphar is a high-ranking person in, in Egypt. And now all of a sudden his wife accuses him of uh, trying to have sexual relations with him. And so now he's cast into prison for 13 years. He's in prison. He's wondering if he's ever going to get out. God gave him this dream. And here now years later, he's sitting in a dark dungeon of a prison, wondering if he's ever going to get out. And finally, God comes through and Pharaoh sins for him because he hears that he can interpret dreams. And Pharaoh has had a dream he cannot interpret, and so Joseph is called out of prison. He interprets the dream for Pharaoh, and Pharaoh makes him second in command over all of Egypt. Now, here's what I want you to see is simply this. That's just a you know, huge capsule of his life, is that Pharaoh isn't like a president, okay? He doesn't answer to anybody. He doesn't have to answer to Congress. He doesn't have to answer to the people. He doesn't have elections. He is considered a god in Egypt, and therefore, whatever he wants to do, he can do without any questions being asked. He wants to take your life. He can take your life. Nobody's going nobody's to raise a finger. Joseph is now second in command over all of Egypt. He is a man of huge, huge power. And then all of a sudden, a famine comes into the land as he predicted. His family has to come to Egypt in order to find food. And so, you know, um, first the sons come and Benjamin's not with him, the youngest son, but his brothers come and they're looking for food. They don't recognize Joseph because he looks like an Egyptian. And they think he's dead, or they, at least he's off into slavery somewhere. Um, and so they ask, you know, they need food. He says, okay, but you've got to go get your, our, your younger brother, Benjamin, and bring him here as a, a sign of good favor. And so they do that. And, and then eventually Jacob, who's 
Then Israel comes, and he also comes to Egypt. They've all been to Egypt now because there's a famine that's lasting seven years in order to save the family. Joseph brings his family back into Egypt, and there he cares for them. And he finally reveals himself to his brothers. They're scared to death thinking he's going to kill them, but he doesn't. He could have, but he doesn't. And then all of a sudden, Jacob has an audience with Pharaoh himself. Now, what do you think Jacob would say, knowing that he's about to meet Pharaoh, who is the um, most powerful man in their known world, who's considered a god by the Egyptians? You think you might come up to him and say, you know, Pharaoh, I, I really, really I want to say I, I'm so taken back. I'm so appreciative of the fact that you, you took my family in. You saved us from famine. You took in my son. You've made him second in command. I mean, I can't begin to tell you how appreciative I am of all that you have done for me and all that you have done for my, my family. Well, look in chapter 47, and let's see what he does say. Verse 7 says, Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh after Jacob blessed. Pharaoh, um, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are 130 my years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Now, that word difficult, some of your translations might say unpleasant. Some of your translations might say evil. Um, and so this is a one-word description. I, I think it's interesting that um, he says, my, my years have been few. I'm 130 years old. And I'm thinking, in Jacob's mind, man, the years have gone by so fast, they have clicked off like this, and I'm not even close to the age of my, my fathers and, and my forefathers, and, but man, the years, are, and I really thought I'd be farther along than this in life, and I really thought I would have given up those things that I've been struggling with all of my life, and, I, and so this summary term that he makes for his entire experience, he says, it's, it's, not, it's not hard, it's not mixed, he says, it's evil, if you look at the Hebrew word of this, it is really a word that we would say regretful. And here's the point. Failure to renew your mind, to dismantle mental strongholds, will always lead to a life of regret when it's all said and done. I was going to get to that. I thought I could do that. I, one day I was going to get to that. Next year it was going to be different. Ten years ago, I thought it would be different than it is now. I, I don't know when I would have a better chance at, for myself, we as a church family, you as an individual to make some significant adjustments in our lives than in this series. This is so important that we tackle these mental strongholds. Marlon and I was listening to a podcast on the way to... Um, North Carolina, and Jennifer Dukes Lee, she's a, a writer, um, does podcasts, she's written a book, uh, she's a farmer's wife, and is it Idaho or Iowa? I think it's Iowa is where they live, but she said something in the podcast that I'd never heard before, is that during the winter months, uh, that at the end of the winter months, before you go out and plow your fields, you have to go out and pick up big rocks, because of the freezing and the thawing throughout the winter, uh, the, these huge rocks that she said might be the size of a chair 
that are underground, all of a sudden they begin to get heaved up to the surface. And if you don't go out and clear out these rocks and you try to plow the fields, obviously you're going to wreck the plow, right? It's going to destroy the plow. And so they have to spend, you know, maybe several weeks out there because they have, you know, enormous size farm picking up all of these huge boulders. See, this is what mental strongholds are. They are things that are beneath the surface, but eventually those mental strongholds always come to the surface through our emotions and through our actions. And if we don't go out and pick them up, if we do not dismantle them, they will eventually destroy us or at least create an enormous amount of regret in our lives because of the things that we said or did or experienced as the result of not dismantling that mental stronghold. This is what happened to Jacob. And this is why all of his life, it was just like, man, the years have passed, they've flown by. I don't understand, but shoo. Um, nothing's really different. Regret or those dark shadows over your life, what should have been, could have been, that would have been if you had let God had his way, but it is not. Regret, regret is the realization I have no one to blame but myself. Now, here's what we do when we want, don't want to deal with our mental strongholds and we don't want to deal with our issues in life and we just want to suppress them and, and act like they're not there and, and make everybody else, you know, kind of uh, endure them who are a part of our relationship is that you're going to put your finger, well, the problem is because of my parents or it's my past or it's the problems I had. And so throughout the course of your lifetime, all of those things you're going to do is create resentment inside of you. But that resentment by the end of your life, when you reach the end of your life, will turn into regret of what could have been, should have been, God wanted to be, but was never there because we never turned it over to him. We never dismantled the, the stronghold. And so... Um, Jacob at this time is 130 years old. He dies when he's 147 years old. Abraham lived to be 175. Isaac, 180. He thought he had a lot of time left. But in reality, he only had 17 years. It went by very quickly. And in the end, nothing changed. Well, how do you know that? Glad you asked that question. Go to the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, which is, you know, would commonly referred to as the hall of faith, where God says by faith and names a person and talks about their faith. And so um, let me just kind of set up Jacob here um, in this great hall of faith. Uh, you'll notice in chapter 11 and verse 11, it says, by faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, remember God promised them a son, 25 years passed by, no son yet, promised son, they're both well beyond age bearing years. And so, and Sarah herself was, was barren. There is a footnote down here. It says that, um, was enabled to become a father because he considered when really this is a duel, it's he and she considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, and he who was as good as dead, came descendants numerous as the stars in the sky, just as God has promised. So here's the deal is that, remember, God made this promise of a promised son. Abraham and Sarah have no children. She is barren. God makes the promise 25 years go by before their son is actually born. 
And so during that 25-year span of time, you think she had some doubts. You think that she had some struggles. You think that she had some issues trying to trust God and believe God that he was going to do exactly what he said. And so I think that for Sarah, at some point in her life, she had to sit down and kind of pull out a, a pen and pencil and think to, you know, what, what's happening here? Well, uh, what is God doing? And, and, but, and then she had to come to this place of faith. I don't understand why it's taking so long. I don't understand how this is going to happen because I'm well beyond childbearing years. But I believe because God has always been faithful to the promises that he's made to us that God will do exactly what he said he would do. And that's exactly what God did. You see, faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how you feel because God has promised it. Well, the same thing is true for Abraham. In verses 17 through 19, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. So Isaac is the promised son. He's received the promises. Uh, promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Why? Because God told him to, right? Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac and that your offspring will be, will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned, that word considered for um, Sarah and this word reason are the same words that means to press your mind down on something, to think about it very intently. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. And so the point is simply this, as, um, as Abraham is, is thinking about what God has asked him to do, and he's thinking about it intently as he's making the journey to the mountain in which he's being, going to be offering up Isaac. He's thinking to himself, you know what? I don't know why God is doing this. I don't know why God is asking me to do this. I don't understand it, but I'm going to do it because he who promised me is always faithful to his promise. He said, he promised me through Isaac will come the nations, uh, a nation through which the Messiah would come, and therefore I'm going to offer him up because even if I take his life, I know that God will just resurrect him. That's some pretty strong faith. How did he get there? He didn't get there in 15 seconds. There are four major crossroads in Abraham's life that kept increasing his faith and his trust in God that brought him to that ultimate conclusion for the ultimate test of his faith, and he passed it with flying colors. Now, let's look at Jacob. Verse 21, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. And so he, bless, he blesses his sons, he blesses his kids and worshiped God while he's leaning. Remember, God touched him and he, he walked with a limp. And so it was, it was kind of... God made him weak so that he would trust in God's strength. Kind of what Paul talked about in Corinthians, right? You know, it's in the midst of our greatest weakness that the powers and the strength of Christ comes upon us in that moment of weakness. And so here he is, he's, he's weak to the very end. See, Jacob always bore his scars of his strongholds that he stubbornly maintained to the very end of his life. Things could have been different, should have been different, but they weren't. It's what Paul calls in the New Testament futile thinking. Futile thinking is foolish thinking, thinking that if I just keep doing the same things over and over again, it will come out different for me. This is why it's so important that we 
we grab hold of these strongholds. We want to dismantle them because, remember, your thought patterns develop the grid system through which you filter everything in your life. And everything has to filter through that grid that's based on lie-based thinking. And therefore, God wants to remove the lies. He wants to replace it with truth so that when things come through your mental processes, that you're thinking about them correctly, not futilely, foolishly. Now, this is the way teenagers are. This is the way I was as a teenager. You would say, what are you going to do Friday night, Greg? Well, I'm going to go out and party. Well, why are you going to do that? What's going to happen? I said, well, I'm going to get really drunk or really high, and I'm going to do a lot of stupid stuff and probably like make a lot of bad mistakes and make some bad choices and develop some bad friendships and do some things that are going to make me miserable. And by when I wake up the next day, I probably won't even remember what I did the day before. Well, why in the world would you do that? Well, that's just what I do every week. Is that good thinking or foolish? But is that not the life of many teenagers? We don't think about the consequences of our actions. We don't think about beyond tomorrow. We just do it, man. It's just like what we do. And we, we can't tell you why we do it. We just, we just do it and do it and do it, thinking that it's going to have a good result, and it never does. So what is the process of renewing my mind? How do I renew my mind? Let me give you uh, three thoughts here, and we'll wrap this up, because I'm going to go through this pretty rapidly. We'll unpack more of this next week as I take these three principles and teach you how to reframe your thought processes so that you can dismantle the strongholds that are in your mental process so that you can begin thinking differently. And when you think differently, you begin to feel differently, you begin to act differently. Now, here's the first one is you have to protect your mind with the Word of God. All of this is built around the Word of God. Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter 4, in verses 1 through 11, when Jesus began his, his public ministry, he fasted for 40 days. He was weak, he was tired, he was hungry, he was thirsty. In his most vulnerable moment, who comes knocking at his door? Satan does. And what does Satan say to him? Very, right out of the gate, if you are the Son of God, so he's questioning his identity. If you are the Son of God, why don't you take these stones and turn them into bread? Because I know you're hungry. Do that. And how did Jesus respond? Did Jesus, did Jesus debate with him? Uh, did Jesus throw out his credentials? Did Jesus, you know, like Muhammad Ali with the rope of dope, kind of play around and toy around with, with uh, Satan before he landed his, 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 you know, knockout blow? No, he just quotes scripture. He just says, it is written, and he quotes right out of the Bible, right? That has already been written out of the book of Deuteronomy. He doesn't spar with Satan. He just simply says, what you're asking of me is lie-based, but what I want to return to you with is truth because this is the truth of God's word, is the word that I live by, and because I live by it, I know that God is faithful to, um, to his promises. And so that doesn't work. And so he comes at him a, a couple more times with two different temptations, but it's the same thing. And so how's Je how does Jesus respond? He always responded with what? It is written. It is written. It is written. He simply says, here's the lie. Here's the truth. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond to your lie with God's truth because that truth that he's responding with is what is known as the rima of God, right? So there are two words that are translated word. When we talk about the word of God, there's logos, which means the word of God or the Bible, the 66 books that you have. 
called the Bible, and then there's the rima of God or the voice of God or a, a very distinct statement of God that addresses an issue that is in front of you. So when the Apostle Paul says, when you're in spiritual warfare, because you're not battling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the air, he says, when you, we're, not, we're not fighting with earthly weaponry, we're fighting with spiritual weapons. And so he says, a part of your offensive weapon is what? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That word, word, is the word rima. It is the word that is, says that by faith comes hearing and hearing by faith in the word of God. So here's, here's what he's saying. And instead of coming to, to Satan and saying, well, you know, just quoting something from the Bible you need something that's confronting the lie that you're believing, right? If I'm, if I'm quoting scripture that's not confronting the lie, it's not going to dismantle the lie. I need the rima, I need the word, the right word at the right time that's addressing the right issue in my life in order to dismantle the stronghold that I am believing. For example, you may come today and say, man, I'm, I'm so discouraged. Pastor Greg talked about the right thing at the right time. I feel so uplifted. God spoke to me distinctly about my discouragement and why I'm discouraged and how my thinking was off. And, and, and man, this is, this is really great. And so what, that is a rima from God to you, right? So it's like God takes that verse and like puts it in a, as a highlighter. It says, man, this verse is unique and different. It is something that I, you know, that's distinct to me in this moment in time. Again, say, Jesus doesn't argue with Satan. He doesn't engage in a conversation. He doesn't give his personal opinion on the matter. So listen, Satan loves it when we say things like, well, I think, or well, my opinion is, or well, I'll check with all my friends on Facebook and see what their opinion is on this. No, you know what the mental stronghold is. You've drilled down on the lie that you're believing that is creating the emotions and the actions that you're, you are dealing with in your life. And therefore, if you're going to dismantle the stronghold, take your thought captive into obedience with Christ, you drill down on the truth that addresses the rima, the word of God that addresses that issue in order to protect your mind. And so Philippians 4, 8 says, there are a lot of good things, there are things you should think upon. Whatever's good, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable. He, he built a grid to say it's simply this. If you keep putting garbage in your mind, you gotta keep getting garbage out. If you think that Satan can battle you mentally 24-7 and you're gonna, you're gonna, like you're going to uh, turn that around just by coming and listening to one message on Sunday ain't going to happen. You've got to learn how to, like a skilled surgeon with a scalpel, which is the rima, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, not my sword, not your sword, his sword. His sword is the word because it's God breathed. You learn like a skilled surgeon to take the scallop of God's word and to slice and dice the lie so that you no longer believe the lie, you anchor your mind in and protect your mind around the truth of God's word, and we're going to teach you how to make declarations based on that truth to keep that firmly implanted in your thought processes. Number two is you wash your mind with the word of God. You wash your mind with the word of God. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5, because I'm almost out of time, uh, I will not read that. You can read it later, but it talks about Jesus having the bride of Christ 
and it's using the context, the relationship between a husband and wife. And so Jesus is saying that, you know, there's the washing of the mind that makes us holy. In salvation, Jesus declared us to be holy. In sanctification, Jesus helps us to live out what he declares us to be. In other words, positionally, I'm holy in Christ, but practically, I'm not living that out unless I learn how to wash my mind in God's word. Well, what do you mean by that? How do I, how do I know when I washed enough when you realize you're thinking differently? Washing your mind begins with a continuous exposure to God's word. You have to read it, okay? This is very simple, elementary. You got to read it. The goal is not to speed read. So you've heard me say this before. I'm not a big fan of reading through the Bible every year. I think if you've never read through the Bible, you need to read the, through the Bible, but not necessarily put yourself on a time frame. And here's why I say that, because here's in essence what happens to people. It's happened to me. I don't know how many times. It happens to you. You start off really well for the first few weeks. Then you get behind a few weeks. You've got to average about 10 chapters a day to keep up pace. And then, you know, you, you, you miss a few days. You get behind. You're trying to catch up. And now all of a sudden, the entire goal of reading is not for God's word to saturate your mind and to wash your mind and to transform your mind. The goal is I just need to check off the box. I read it. I read it. I read it. I read it. And you're now you're speed reading through it. No, no. You need to treat God's word like a good steak. I mean, you know, you want to chew on that thing for a while, not speed read your way through it. But, and I'm not saying that you can't like how many chapters you should read or not read whatever. Like for example, right now through the month of May, I'm reading one chapter a day out of the book of Acts, you know, paralleling whatever day of this month is. And so, but my point is the goal of reading God's word is transformation, not just information. Study it. How do you study it? You study it with pen and paper, Right. There are all kinds of study aids out there, a plethora. You can get a study Bible that gives you all the background, who the author's writing to, what the situation is, what kind of language is being used, what literature is being used. I mean, there's just so much out there. And I don't want you to overwhelm yourself, but you need to have, when you start reading through a book of the Bible, a, a general knowledge. Well, who's writing this book and who is it writing it to and why are they writing it? Because you've got to put context to everything that you're studying. And so you're studying to go deeper into what God has to say and then memorize. You need to memorize God's word. Listen, if God gives you a truth that confronts the lie that you've been believing, it is, listen, it's the sword of the spirit, right? Your offensive weapon. You don't want to say, well, where is that in the Bible? Uh, I'll wait till I get home and get my concordance out, figure out where that is, and then look at that verse. And I'll, by then, Satan's already defeated you, right? He's already got you off doing what he, he wants you to do. No, you need to commit those truths to your mind and say, Oh, but God's word says it is written, it is written, it is written so that you confront the lie right then and there. So you begin to de-escalate yourself emotionally because listen, as human beings, we are more prone to go with our emotions than we are sound logic. That's just the way we're wired, but we have to train ourselves to go with truth, not what we feel because they may not be one and the same. You got to meditate on it. Meditate, if, listen, if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. 
Because worrying is just nothing but negative thinking over and over and over and over again. Well, that meditation is the same thing. It means to chew on God's word. So you memorize this, this truth and just let it roll over in your mind. For example, I'm reading a chapter a day out of Acts. Well, I don't just read the chapter to close up my Bible and not think about it the rest of the day. No, I meditate on what I've read that day, all throughout the day. I'm asking God, what does this mean? And how, how can I apply this? And where's this going to intersect in my life today? And, and Lord, what is it you're trying to show me? And because you want to meditate. The Bible is filled with benefits of meditating on God's word. Psalm 1, 2, and 3 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates on day and night. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. See, a benefit of meditation is fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. One of the ways that the Spirit begins to develop the fruitfulness in you is through meditating on God's Word. James or Joshua 1.8, do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be successful and prosperous. 2 Peter 2.2, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. If you go grocery shopping and you bring your groceries home and you put them in the cabinet, but you never take them out, how's that going to help you physically? You actually have to physically eat the food to get the nutrition to help your body. Well, this is the same thing that meditation is all about. You want to feed your soul? You want to nourish your soul? You've got to take the word of God. If you just go home and put it on a shelf to pick it up next Sunday when you come to church, no, you've got to meditate. And you meditate on it, and it's like literally it's like a cow chewing its cud. It's just like getting every ounce of nutrition that they can out of the grass that they're eating. And so you're just meditating on that, and you're, the Holy Spirit's enabling you to extract everything, every nutrient that you can out of God's word. And here's why this is so important is because... What, this, what, what God does is he begins to build a framework, a picture in your mind. Now watch this. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the evil one, Satan, blinds the minds of the unbelieving. Now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say he blinded their eyes. Your eyes are simply the gateway that allows your mind to develop mental pictures. For example, if I say, think of the word elephant, you're going to think of a picture of an elephant, not the word. That's the way the mind operates. And so by meditating on God's word, you're building these mental pictures so that now you begin to live your life on the basis of those mental pictures as to what God has promised. To give you an example, when the 12 spies went from out of Israel, when they, you know, they're in the wilderness wandering, God's promised them the promised land, it's yours Take it. It's for yours for the taking. The 12 spies went in there. Only two out of the 12 said, we can take the land. 
Why? Because they had a mental picture. God said the land's ours. God said that he promised us the land. He's giving it to us. We're going to have to battle for it. We're going to have to fight for it. But everywhere we fight, everywhere we go, we're going to have the victory. We're going to get this land. This is what God's promised to us. But what did the other guys, they had a mental picture of what? Not what God could do. They only had a mental picture of what they could do. And they said, oh no, they're giants in that land. We're like grasshoppers in that land. We can't take the land. We can't do it. And because of that, they had to wander another 40 years. You see what Satan wants to do to you? He wants to so distort your thought processes and convince you that this is just impossible. Somebody said to me the other day, she, said, she goes, well, I just don't, I just don't, I believe that there are some sins that you just can never, ever overcome. You can never get rid of them. There's your stronghold. That's a lie of the enemy. Now, that might be your mental process and thought process, but that's a lie of the enemy. All right, number, next one is you got to apply it, right? You got to, James 1.22 says, don't be mere hearers of the word, but be doers, right? You got to do what the word says. Don't like, don't be looking in the mirror and seeing what needs to be taken care of, and then you walk away and do nothing about it. Listen, the greatest sin in your life is not the temptation you're facing. The greatest sin in your life is in the neglect of God's word. You'll never have victory apart from it, period. And then you share it, right? You share what you're learning. You share what God's teaching you. That's a part of the process. And then thirdly, you set your mind on the word of God. Uh, in Colossians 3, 2, it says set our mind. Listen, if, you, if you've ever pounded a nail in a board... Now, if you're a very skilled um, carpenter, I've seen guys, they can take the nail and put it between their finger and go, bam, and move their hand out of the way and drive the nail right into a board, especially like uh, putting plywood on a roof. I could not do such skill. I'd have to what's called set the nail, right? So typically you just set the nail, you tap it a little bit to save your thumb and finger from getting smashed, and then you drive it in. This is what Paul is saying. He says, listen, you need to set your mind. You need to set the nail. You need to set your mind on God's word because this is the key to your victory. It is the key to walking in freedom. There is no other way around it. You must set your mind. And did you notice that when Jesus used the word and set his mind and he made it through the temptation and demonstrated that he was going to live by God's word and apply it and he would not vary from it, it was then that God sent his angels to minister to him. Listen, God has angelic beings who he utilizes on your behalf, but he wants to know, first of all, whether or not you're serious about actually applying and following and giving your life to the word of God and he can do credible things if you're willing to set your mind to that. Now let me just say the last three things on deepening your commitment. <laughs> Studying, memorizing, meditating, all this, it's a discipline. Who loves disciplines? <laughs> Ain't none of us, right? You know, you say, well, I'm going to get healthy this year. I got to go to the gym. How long does that last? A month? Two months. It starts off as a discipline, but it doesn't remain there if you'll stick with it. Right? If you get up tomorrow morning and say, man, I'm going I'm I'm to I'm gonna wash my mind, protect my mind, I'm going to set my mind in the word of God, and man, I'm going to start this journey just as the pastor said, and, and I, I'm going to set my nail, and I'm going to go for it. 
You'll probably get up tomorrow and say, I want pancakes for breakfast a hundred times before you ever say that. Because as discipline, we don't like discipline. But watch this. If you, if you start, and it, it may take 30 days, it may take 60 days, it may take 90 days, but that discipline will eventually become a desire. The discipline becomes a desire, and over time it becomes a delight, and you can't imagine life without it. I'm telling you, this is the struggle for everybody. And the journey from being a um, delight to being a desire is much shorter than getting from being um, a discipline to that of being a delight. All right, so I'm just saying you, you've got to do this. If you don't, you're opening yourself up wide open to what the enemy wants to do in your life. And by the end of your life, a failure to renew your mind, a failure to dismantle strongholds, I am assure you when you get to the end of your life, there's going to be a lot of regrets that did not have to be there, but they are there because we refused to allow God to do what he wanted to do. Father, we, um, we acknowledge before you this morning our weakness. Lord, we, we acknowledge that we, we just can't do this on our own. We've tried it on our own before, and it just never seemed to work out. It just never seemed to last very long. It just seemed like it was 10 steps forward and 20 backwards, and we're all over the map. And so, Lord, I, I pray for every person here this, this morning, everybody who's watching online. I know this is a lot of information, but, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will just settle this, 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 this desire to protect our minds and to watch what we allow to enter our minds and this desire to wash our minds in your word and and, and Lord, to set our minds upon your word as a, a daily activity of our lives so that, Father, we might walk in, yes, this freedom, that we might experience healing from our woundedness, that we might remove sin from our lives, that we might have victory over the evil one who only seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. Lord, we know that you have the power to dismantle strongholds, that you have the power to deliver us from the hand of the evil one. God, we, we long for that. We hunger for that. We desire that. We yearn for that. So Lord, I, I pray that Holy Spirit will, will just meet us tomorrow morning. And just give us a nudge. Hey, how about my word? How about my word? I wrote it for you. I want to wash your mind today. I want to protect your mind. I want to, I want to set your mind on the path leads to the best destination for this day and just soak it let it go deep into you not just reading it um, just to check a box but Lord, help us to read it Father meditatively and we just chew on it and we allow it to nourish us and to equip us and to protect us and to enable us to dismantle to tear down these fortresses in our thought processes that would enable us to walk in the freedom of Jesus. Jesus said the truth is what sets us free. And Lord, I pray for the freedom of your people from these sins that so beset us. 
from the pain that so entraps us. God, I pray that you'll set people free from anger and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. God, set them free. I pray that you'll release us from fears, from hatred, from the fear of risk or the fear of failure, from worry, from anxiety, from depression. Lord, from the addictions that so keep us pinned down in our minds and our hearts. And Lord, we confess we've, we've, we've promised you many things and we've, we've tried to do it on our own, and, but it never works out. It just doesn't work out and we fail over and over again. And now we feel guilty coming back to you again and again and again with the same issues, the same sins, the same behaviors, the same thoughts. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you will help your church embrace your word as they never have in the past. To look at your word differently, it is the life of God that has the ability to wash, to transform our thought processes that enable us. Oh God, like a, taking off a coat, Paul said, like taking off a coat, we can take off the anxiety, we can take off the depression, we can take off the hatred and the bitterness and the unforgiveness, and we can walk in the freedom of Jesus. We can be delivered from those things that so keep us pinned down. God, we need victory. The church of Jesus Christ is dying on the vine. Because we've looked at your word as nothing eh, leave it take it Lord we we acknowledge that the reason we are powerless is because we have so neglected your word Lord I pray that your Holy Spirit would change that as we struggle to make this a discipline God may you quickly bring it as a very strong desire in the hearts of your people and quickly move that to being a delight that I would rather go without food than to go without the word of God on a daily basis. Now, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in the hearts of your people. We thank you for Jesus who came in obedience to the Father and died on a cruel cross that we might experience the forgiveness of our sins, the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus comes to save. And so I pray for those who need to set their faith upon him and him alone for the salvation of their soul. Lord, we also thank you and praise you that Jesus does not leave us in our, uh, our broken state of being, but he has come to heal us and to deliver us. And so I pray that over your people today, over my life, over every life here, Lord, we want to experience that healing. We want to experience that deliverance. I pray that you would develop a hunger and a thirst within us for just that. Lord, transform us. Make us new. Make us, help us to become what we've already become in Christ. That we might live out practically what we've become in him positionally. Holy, set apart, sanctified, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus. Now we stand and we sing in celebration of who you are. For to your name we pray. Amen.